what crazy queries are other people in the organization writing? Like, when we went through this incident, what queries could we have written to sort of understand how to navigate the data? The organization as a gestalt has pockets of like deep expertise. How do we get the right information to the right people at the right time so that they can also query someone who's been there for five years because that person might be on vacation when an incident happens. Hi, I'm Liz Vaughn Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. I question the concept of an SRE team, right? Like, I don't think Stripe has SRE teams, right? Yeah. So you come back, you say, okay, like teams are responsible for their own code in production end to end, but they also need some amount of expertise, right? Which I think Netflix core models yeah. well. Yes. Yeah, they're not experts in reliability. Nobody's asking you to be an expert in everything. SREs can help with that. So this is why like this term SRE, I think the same way that you might say reliability or resilience, right? But a specialist team helping to coordinate. What about the embedded model? The embedded model is interesting. I guess I have limited exposure. I haven't seen all of these models in, you know, I've only worked in so many orgs. What I can say is that I think helping people make the right decisions at the right time, including in design, you know, understanding that product engineers have like 60 different trade-offs they're making and probably their management chain is most interested in the velocity of their software. So understanding how they interface with security, reliability, accessibility, any of these like cross-cutting non-functional concerns, having an answer, like maybe it's embedded. It almost doesn't matter, right? Like what matters is that somewhere in your ecosystem, you need to have someone whose job it is to understand this thing deeply and help you do it better, right? Like it's not abdicating responsibility, it's having someone that you can go to. Well, it's, so whose job it is is interesting. I think it's probably right, but I think there's this issue of if it's no one's job, it's everyone's job. And if it's everyone's job, it's no one's job. Like I see myself at Stripe doing some of this where I have a pretty full engineering workload. I'm also, you know, involved in at various organizational levels trying to uplevel, you know, our incident life cycle. I think that there's a benefit, you know, to having practitioners, right? So again, all of this stuff, there's trade-offs and it's like, how does it work in your organization? What's legible? How do you set people up for success? But I think there is, you know, access to the expertise and then an organization which doesn't try and have its cake and eat it too, right? Because if you like tell people you want infinity nines and you tell people that you want all the features tomorrow and you have a team of three people instead of 20 people, you won't get all of those things, right? It is simply not possible. I mean, you know, under this, you know, made up scenario. Mm. So now would be a good time for you to tell us about yourself. Uh, Sure. My name is Jacob Scott. I am a software engineer at Stripe. I've been at Stripe for about a year and I work on the sort of product infrastructure that supports teams at Stripe building public APIs. And I like being on the interface of infrastructure and product And I uh, have a particular passion and interest in 
well, you might call it resilience engineering, but that gets into a definitional issue. I would say modern safety science intersecting uh, reliability. So you're kind of very well positioned to think about this. Like, how do you bring these practices and distribute them across a large organization? which I think is really, really cool. Yes. Uh, I mean, I agree completely, except that with the caveat that it is a forever work in progress. You know, I think that every organization does this differently. I think I, Paul Osman, who's now at uh, uh, Honeycomb, who's awesome, who I've uh, had the privilege to chat with, I think said recently, you know, best practices may or may not exist or maybe context specific. And so I think that understanding how at Stripe you sort of help Help with alignment. I think this really interesting uh, cultural piece that at least I first heard going back to Netflix, I think maybe 15 or 20 years ago about loose coupling and high alignment. And I think that in, you know, the sort of startup part of the tech world that I have spent most of my career in, everyone is on board with loose coupling. No one wants the CEO to sign your TPS reports before you like make your commit. But alignment is a lot more challenging in terms of like, well, how are we all rowing the same way? And then particularly in some of these complex areas in reliability, like if it doesn't metric well, it gets really hard, I think, or much harder to align. Um, people, I think that maybe I'm being too mean to executives, but I think that in general, they like to have like a bunch of stoplights. And then if like all the bottom stoplights are green, then they roll them up into like the next level. And they're like always looking for any red or yellow stoplight to trace it down to the root. And like, some stuff in reliability doesn't work quite that way, and it can be a challenge to untangle that and create alignment. So when we think about kind of the idea that are systems working or not, right, like people instinctively tend to reach towards this idea of perfection and, you know, infinite nines, and we know that doesn't really work so well. But what about kind of the reduction of SRE to kind of SLOs? Like, I, I know that you kind of pushed back about that, against that recently. This is super interesting. And again, like there are a couple of prisms. So first, I think it's great. You can pull out one perspective on resilience engineering, which is safety one and safety two. Safety one being like, how do we make stuff not go wrong? Which is what we think about a lot. Safety two being, how do we make stuff go right? Like, how do we look at what we're doing well and, and accelerate it? So if you're using SLOs to good effect, like more power to you, where I think, you know, I have this question about SLOs being insufficient uh, is actually captured. There's a uh, Narayan Desai, I think at Google, who's SRE at Google, gave, gave a talk at SRECon, uh, the map is not the territory. And it's, it's this question of like, I think SLOs, and this is my personal perspective, right? I think they work well in statistical regimes. So if you're trying to go from like, 0.995 to 0.996 availability on a thing that you do CICD and you're like leaking some failures and you then like, okay, we need to prioritize fixing that so we can improve uh, our availability. They don't work well for all the failures you read about in the press. Like when Google Cloud networking goes down because like they like push something in some way. I used to know the actual like GC net. 9,007 or something. There was like a year or two ago that Google networking, Google cloud networking went down for like six or eight hours. Right. The black swan model, right? Like you cannot predict the things that you cannot predict. Yeah. This is unknown unknowns. It's dark debt. It's catastrophic failures in complex systems. And so my belief is that SLOs are sort of insufficient for that. And I think it's fine for them to be insufficient. My concern is about people who sort of because SLOs are metrics, and so they fit in this like metrics box, they're just like, great, our liability is metrics, we have an SRE team managing our SLOs, we're done. And it's like, that is not, 
you also miss like this human component, right? People do that? Well, I think that it is easy for people to do it. Like, okay, so there's a Harvard Business Review article, uh, a cover story uh, from the past year or so, Don't Let Metrics uh, Destroy Your Business, that talks about Wells Fargo is the example, where they're like, we want to like attach, which means like we want to cross sell. Like if you have a Wells Fargo account, you should have six Wells Fargo accounts. And like, that's how we're going to bonus. This is like in- uh, system design and incentives and like blah, blah, blah. Well, the answer is that like their sales associates committed fraud to like sign people up for accounts that they didn't know they had because it then looked good on their uh, metrics that got them bonuses. Yeah. As soon as you have a metric, people will try to goose it. Yeah. Good hearts or whatever it is. And so I, I think that it is in a world with so many trade-offs, including at the executive level, right? I perceive a an ease, the, the downward slope of just like, it should be a metric. Like show me the metrics. We'll monitor all the metrics. We'll shift resources so that the metrics are good. In a lot of ways, I think that this is also just sort of the natural end state of capitalism, which is to you know replace humans by widgets and every. Like I, I told this story on this show before, but like it blew my mind when I realized that most C levels have closer relationships with their vendors and with their people. You know, because people come and go, but like vendors are forever. And so when a vendor's like. Uh, pay me tens of millions of dollars and I'll make it so that I'll tell your people what to look at and I'll tell your people what it means and I'll never have to think again, you know, just like, because I think that a lot, there's a lot of anxiety for executives and, and like C-levels in that, yeah, it's risky. Your systems depend on your people wanting to work there and being happy. And it's become like a risk for them to try to eliminate. Problem is, fucking can't yeah i think that and that actually like it's it's this question of like control versus nurture right oh yeah you nurture people that's risky i mean they might not do everything you want them to it might not be best for them do you really want to get them thinking like that no of course not so how do you shift that mindset though how do you get people towards like organizations that are oriented towards positive people-based outcomes well we succeed like a motherfucker. <laughs> and this is why I, I think that like, it can be very difficult to sit in the middle of, you know, your, your friends who are, you know, very idealistic and, you know, and how could you work at a place like Google? How could, how could you work with a person like charity majors, you know? And it's like, you know, we all have to make our own ethical and moral chances, but like, I believe that it's worth doing. You know, I believe that it's, worth compromising my soul. I believe that it's worth trying to build something mainstream, not a niche product where I can feel, you know, superior to everyone, but I want to change the world in a big way. And that means you have to do big things. I would say to uh, compose with that perspective, a pragmatic perspective might be, you know, carefully, which is to say, see what you can do in alignment with authority. Also try and catch a wave, right? Yeah. Like if, if an executive is like, I, I went and looked at some incident reports and they're pretty shitty. Like maybe that's a great uh, time to say like, yes, and let's like give people the Etsy facilitator debriefing guide, right? Like let's not just do- Be prepared and ready with your answers for how to change things. Well, so this is interesting because of course, one definition of resilience is sustained adaptive capacity, right? It's It's the, like, this is the academic like woods or whatever, but it's like your ability to respond to an emergency. So it's like, are you- just kind of ready to pounce when the organization shows you an opportunity to make improvements along this 
ethical and moral uh, dimension that are also legible to the organization. Yeah. Because like, ultimately, like the execs more or less want the same thing as as we do when we're talking about CICD and everything. It's just that I think as, as engineers, we often fail to speak the right language to them to really show them how the solutions that we propose will help them move more quickly, will help them make their people happier. You know, like if, if we take a very oppositional stance from the beginning, they're not going to trust it at whatever, whatever you want to do must be wrong somehow because, you know, you, they just don't trust you. Right. But like if we're all, and Liz is a master of this, of just being on the same page as everyone and helping them slowly walk closer towards each other. In particular, as a practitioner, sort of, I don't see myself as an engineer and a vendor the same way that like, and I don't mean vendor in a, in a, to besmirch, right. But like, I'm hoping to learn from go to market of like all of these of, of honeycomb of jelly of others, a launch darkly. I don't know the full list. And excuse me, I think those are, if I'm missing anyone, I think those are some good examples. Like once you've figured out how to entice the C-suite or like how to shift I'm drafting off your capitalism because like you'll succeed financially if you figure out how to position and pitch this and then we'll see, you know, I have no purchasing power, which makes it easy, but like some products, some Stripe may or may not use at some point, not my decision, but the observability maturity model, et cetera, et cetera, those sorts of uh, content and perspective and positioning, like I will read all that stuff and try and like figure out how to tweak it to fit Stripe's culture and uh, Stripe's executive legibility and see what I can do with it. Right, exactly. It's almost like, you know, you're, like you're trying to sail with the wind, not against the wind, right? Yes. The thing is, sailing directly into the wind, like the market will stay irrational longer than you'll stay solvent. Like executives will stay around longer than you'll stay cranky. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it's even just like explaining things to them in terms of you know, going through, I mean, this is the thing where I think engineers try to be so precise and so we get frustrated, be like, well, you can't convert the, the CICD, like you can't convert that into dollars and cents of headcount. Yeah, you can. It's not going to be accurate, but that's not your problem. <laughs> that business people make decisions every day based on back of the envelope stuff that's just like, it's all they got, you know, so they have to move so that they're not, pay- and engineers need to get better at this too, just going like, you know, because like, I pulled it out of my ass that it takes twice as many engineers to support a system that takes hours to deploy instead of, um, but you know what? I've been checking my math with technologists for the past month and it's basically right. So. <laughs> yep. I think the other thing I would add, which is interesting, and I don't know whether it's more controversial, but, and some of these things you can sort of dual boot in your brain, right? Like they're different models and you can like look at whichever one is best at the time. Executives are people too, yeah. which is to say that like, Everyone's in a complex system. Like executives have, you know, there's a power differential, but they also are operating under uncertainty. Oh, yeah. Like they also have, you know, cognitive load. They also have managers. And you know what? We all overestimate how much of what we know they know. You know, like they're operating in so little knowledge, you know, and, and, and I feel like engineers tend to say things once. And if it's not heard, go, well, that didn't work. <laughs> And, and we also tend to just assume that there's there's knowledge, you know, if our manager, our manager's manager, you know, manager's manager, manager. And, the, and we also, I think, tend to assume that those people are inaccessible to us. None of those things are true. What this feels like to me is almost like, right, like we were talking earlier about how SLOs, the map, the territory, right? Like it almost feels like the value of SLOs is not the concrete number. The value of the SLO is the shared understanding you build along the way. You can get a lot of benefit without injecting any faults, right? You design 
the experiment with not just the senior people in the room, but everyone on the team in the room um, and see who's surprised by what. So absolutely and completely. Yeah. Although I do feel like there's this tendency and I noticed this like, you know, the, the resilience engineering community of just like always saying that everyone needs to be involved in everything. And it's like, there literally isn't enough time in the day. Honey, we won't get any work done. And so, but like the solution is always, well, include security, include design, include blah, 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 include blah, blah, blah. Now you've got 10, 15 teams. You can't make a decision with that many people, you know? And it's like, you do have to like, it's not always the answer. Sometimes it's helpful and you need to be mindful of it. No, this is, and I guess this is what I would say about virtualizing multiple, like running many different AMIs on your instance, right? Like in swapping, because you can take a pure Google SRE, like you, you could just forget about resilient engineering and look at your error budget burn down, right? Or you could forget about SRE and like just quote straight out of Decker and understanding how to balance these. And it's going to be different in every organization, which is under different sorts of pressure, different executives, different engineers. And I guess also, if you tie it back to alignment or whatever, it really helps if people understand the ground truth and understand the trade-offs, right? Because like, what is... It understands if people know what the point is, too. Yes, which is all sort of common ground, right? Because it's certainly the case. Maybe you shouldn't run that game day. Maybe one person should run that game day instead of a whole team. Like, then you should expect, you know, in the totality of time you know, maybe some drawbacks or, or less understanding, like that person, when they're going on call, didn't participate in that game day and will be less prepared. That was a trade-off that we made and we thought was the right trade-off, right? You're always making decisions under uncertainty. And I think that the reason that resilience engineers are often just like being, throw everything in the soup, is because not enough ingredients are currently being used. And so they're, they're, it's, it's not that it's the answer it's that they're trying to pull the, the pendulum back to like including more people and realizing there are more stakeholders. Right, kind of pushing the Overton window, right? Like we often ask for things that we know we're not going to get. I think it is also interesting to think about like what people tweet on Twitter and what actually happens to people in organizations, right? Like I think it's- mm, Like a long discussion about, you know, what does real CD look like, right? Like charities, like you must practice real CD. And it turns out like even at Honeycomb, like there are a lot of shortcomings in our CD, yeah. right? I mean, I think it's it's uh, Fred who started as Honeycomb's SRE, who's certainly part of the resilience engineering community and maybe in various circles has, you know, hot takes on, you know, root cause not existing. Like that's, I don't think going to prevent him from like writing code and like solving Honeycomb's pressing infrastructure problems. Twitter is a cesspool. Let's just agree with that. It's, it is Satan's laboratory. It uh, is the worst. It is a hell set. Sorry, I've had a rough week. I guess you dual boot. Like Twitter can be like, I don't know that I would be involved in this domain without Twitter. One of the things that Twitter has positively done for us, right, like is Twitter was kind of how I met Jacob and then kind of how we invited Jacob to come to a, you know, company open, you know, Honeycomb in general is a pretty open company. So we were like, hey, Jacob, you don't work here. We're curious for your take on like, would you like to sit in, in, in on an incident review? Like that was super fun. Yeah, it was fun. And this, I, I'm just looking, was in in December of 2019, or, or maybe I visited in, in November. So it's like 18 months ago. And it's really interesting to see like exactly the same stuff we're talking about in this podcast show up in my uh, write-up, like the sort of the positivity that was in that uh, incident review meeting, right? As potentially example of, you know, Westrom generativity, right? Like this uh, surprise about what that Valgrind uh, being in your CICD system like didn't catch uh, this out of memory error, Last anecdote, maybe, right? Like the fact that I think you were dropping observability data at that time because like the exception happened 
after half the span had been sent, but not the other half. And so like bugs and observability systems are the worst, right? Because that's what you're using to like detect the bugs. I can't trust my tools to help me debug my tools. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was super fun. And I think I was at the South Park Commons then, which is a great organization I was lucky to be at. But it's uh, it's just super interesting to like see and learn from everybody. And I think that this, you know, curiosity about reliability, I think is like a great signal and sort of the- Too often our tools punish our curiosity instead of like welcoming it. Completely. But I think it- in a sort of positive lens, right? I think that curiosity is a really interesting frame, you know, coupled, like I see surprise and curiosity is linked. And I see, if you think about like the default way people think about reliability, which is like, I want it to be perfect. If it's not perfect, it's broken. Like it's bad that we're unreliable, right? Like everyone starts getting anxious, you know, executives going to be at the, the review, right? Like curiosity you know, like it's your inner child. It's like, oh, this so like, what did I learn about the system today? One of the things that's been so great about, yeah, observability, blah, blah, blah. You all have heard this feel, but like, it makes it so much more fun to work. You know, it, it like, it's a different job. It's when you can tune into that childlike curiosity and just like explore and find amazing things and horrible things and fix them and make your customers happy. Like you just go home feeling high at the end of the day. And like, we're so lucky. Like, who gets a job like this? Like the tools that we build that we, that we use in our technical systems have the potential to help us transform like ourselves as well as our users. That's a pretty good pitch for uh, either building or working with great observability tools. <laughs> so speaking of building or working with great observability tools, what's your observability journey been like now that you've started at Stripe? Like what have you been up to that's been fun and exciting you can share? An oldie but a goodie, I think, is... Uh, from 20, so again, sort of two years ago. In fact, uh, Brunder, who's a, a teammate of mine, wrote a blog post on Stripe, which maybe I remember from charity retweeting before I worked at Stripe about our use of canonical log lines. So this is sort of like, mm, yeah, you know, Stripe is monolith-ish, and we, you know, have I guess it's a, a wide sort of event, you know, that gets logged on every API call. And actually, a thing. Speaking of what's gone right, right, like that data, not just sort of live in a logging system that you can use during, you know, incident response or whatever, but gets archived as I imagine could be common. I don't know how common, but it's certainly doable for other folks, right? It goes to Kafka, gets archived in Parquet. There's like a, a web tool that's pretty useful that you can make SQL queries on. And so you can like slice and dice to say like, you know, did latency regress like it's, it's, it's revolutionary when you can slice and dice and high cardinality dimensions and, and high dimensionality data. It's just transformative. And it doesn't sound like a big deal. This is why so many people like have to see it in motion on their data for it to like go. Oh, no, I think that's right. We have a lot of customers. We have a lot of merchants. We have a lot of subsystems. We have a lot of products. And without this. You're literally just like, you're forming guesses. You're looking at top 10 lists. You're guessing, and then you're looking for evidence that you were right. Like with the slicing and dicing, it is transformative. It changes your life. I guess I'm, I'm sort of lucky enough that this was mostly in place when I showed up. So interestingly enough, it took us like a year and a half to figure out the, the instrumentation side of observability, you know, the single arbitrarily wide structured, you know, log line per service per request. Turns out Amazon's been doing this in EC2 for like 15 years. And I'm just like, God damn it. So I'm delighted to see it. Like, I really think it's like one of the primitives of observability. And the more that people are doing it, the happier they will be. 
you need kind of two ingredients, right? Like you need the right data, but also you need really great kind of visualization and intuitiveness and interactiveness, right? Like those are two magical ingredients. Yeah. And I think in particular, like a place where I'm curious is like for distributed tracing, the places I've been maybe haven't had the slam dunk visualization there, right? And so it's like, if you don't have a good way to use that data, that's easy for like, you know, a junior or a regular engineer who has 50, the same, you know, security or reliability expertise that people don't necessarily have because they're a product engineer doing 50 things. Like, how do you give people quick insight? And I mean, like, Bubble Up is maybe a great example from Honeycomb, but in terms of like distributed tracing, I've seen it be sort of more expert oriented than yeah, that, like. I mean, that's that's been kind of the, the fatal flaw with. Um, the last generation or, or two of distributed tracing tools is that two flaws. Number one, you can't rule it out partially. Like if there are any gaps in it, it's just, well, it's broken. And number two, like every place that I know of that's rolled it out, there's like, it's not broadly used by people. It's like, there's one person. Everybody goes to that one person when they need something traced. Yeah. It's definitely a pattern that you kind of have to consciously work at. So, so you have canonical log lines and kind of what are you doing to kind of utilize them more fully at, at Stripe? You know, I, I think it's about sort of learning. They hired Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> I would say plug it into the um, incident pipeline to understand like, okay, what crazy queries are other people in the organization writing? Like when we went through this incident, what queries could we have written, right? To sort of understand how to navigate the data. Mm, so kind of leveling up through kind of social connections, right? Leveling up based on people's past queries in order to help teach future people. Or again, alignment, uh, common ground, like the organization as a gestalt has pockets of like deep expertise in understanding how to use this data and how do we get the right information to the right people at the right time so that they can also query, you know, like someone who's been there for five years because that person might be on vacation when an incident happens. So you mentioned earlier kind of this idea of, you know, that, that you're trying to align what the industry is doing versus what kind of executives think and perceive. Mm-hmm. What is it that startups, what is it that the kind of rest that the tools ecosystem can do to help facilitate that adoption? I mean, keep doing what you're doing, I guess. Like maintain the Goldilocks zealousness, right? Like take the you know, strong underpinnings, whether, you know, it's scuba or like John Alspaugh's note to tooling vendors or whatever, right? Take those inspirations, stay true to them, and then figure out if you stay true to them and you're successful, then you will figure that out for me, right? Because you've successfully uh, sold it to, to executives. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair, you know, right? Like peer validation, right? Like marketplace validation is a sign that enables you to pick up that same tool set and adopt it elsewhere. Yep. Well, this was super awesome. Um, where can people find more about you, Stripe, kind of your writing and what you've been reading recently? Awesome. Uh, so for me, I would say just keep it simple, like Twitter, J-H-S-C-O-T-T, J-H Scott on Twitter. And I'll like update. I'm, I am trying to write more. I got to find, I think I'm on Substack. I don't know, but I tweet a lot too. And then, you know, Stripe there, I would highlight, you know, Stripe is, is hiring. We have a lot of interesting problems on all facets of this. Um, and that's stripe.com slash jobs. And I guess one last plug for Stripe Press and the Increment. So the Increment is a great uh, tech magazine. It's published some of Charity's work. Stripe Press. And some of my work too. Oh, so, oh sorry. Some of your work. I, I have the whole set of uh, 
of issues, but but haven't read every article in them. Um, Stripe Press publishes great books. So yeah, uh, definitely check out Stripe. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.